Well, this morning we are uh, going to continue in our series of Advent studies, so we're taking a break from our expositions in John's Gospel for these four weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, and we're studying in particular uh, truth around the arrival of Jesus. Uh, and so like we talked about last week, the Advent or the arrival of Christ that we think about during the Christmas season, Advent brings with it two main elements for our consideration uh, as we worship and as we uh, meditate on these things during the Christmas season. Uh, the first element is that of celebration. So during the weeks leading up to Christmas, we uh, want to say that our tone of life, our interactions with one another, the things that we're able to spend time doing together, these things take on a celebratory tone uh, because we celebrate the reality that the God we serve is the God who keeps his promises. Uh, he's the one who sent his son into the world to pay the price we owe for our sins so we can be saved forever. We celebrate the fact that the promise-keeping God has done what he's promised to do. He's sent his son into the world to be our savior. So the first big truth that informs our Advent season leads us uh, to, this, to this reality of celebration. And then the second element of our Advent uh, consideration is that of recognizing this initial uh, coming of Christ also leaves us with tension and expectation as we look forward to his second coming. So as we, reflect, as we reflect on the first coming of Jesus during the Christmas season, we're simultaneously compelled to look forward to his second advent, to his second coming. The one who came and lived and died on the cross for our sins, the one who rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven, uh, he is the same Christ who is promised to return. Uh, he's the Jesus of two advents. In his first arrival, he procures our salvation. In his second coming, he will bring about the consummation of all the final full promises of God uh, as we recognize the heavenly reality of the new creation and the hope that's there for us. And so, and so at Christmas time, we find ourselves in a season of holiday celebration, but we also find ourselves uh, uniquely recognizing the tension of our expectations, which is why we even see it in the lyrics we sing or we hear it in the songs we sing where you've got these joyful words, but at the same time, often we're singing them in a minor key because we have the joy that we express in the fact that our Savior has been born, but there's still a minor tone to our lives as we wait because the fullness of all this promise to Him has not come yet. And so that's even reflected in the, in the tenor of our worship. And, uh, and so we, we consider this expectation element in our studies, and in particular this year during the Advent season, we're focusing our, our attention on truth that's around the second coming of Jesus. Uh, we often spend these Advent Sundays speaking about the first coming, and that's wonderful to do, uh, but we also see the place for paying special attention to this expectation that is stirred up in us during this season for Jesus' return. Uh, we look for that. And so we're giving our attention to that kind of truth, and we set the context for our studies last week from the book of Titus, where we looked at uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, where Paul really locates our living between two advents. He speaks about the advent of grace, so the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Uh, Jesus has come, and He's done what's necessary to save us. And then we look forward to the advent of glory, His glorious appearing when He comes again and we, and we long for that day. So we set the context of our study with Paul's statement there where he speaks of the, of the two advents of Christ. And now we're going to continue with our theme this morning by focusing on this passage that Kelly read for us from Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 to 14. Um, these verses begin a section of teaching from Jesus, which is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, and that name comes from the fact that 
uh, we begin in verse 3 with a location reference. Uh, so there in verse 3, you see how Jesus is giving this teaching to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So Olivet Discourse is the name that we give to this. Um, and what has brought about the occasion for this section of teaching, which is the longest section of teaching directly uh, from Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, what's brought this on is found in the section just prior to our verses here in Matthew, where Jesus has been speaking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So he was speaking in that context about an event that would take place about 40 years into the future in A.D. 70 uh, during the Jewish-Roman Wars when the temple would be destroyed. And so Jesus' disciples have heard him speak this way, and what Jesus has said has prompted the question that we then have in verse 3, if you're looking at that, which sets, sets, this, sets this discourse off. So in verse 3, if you look there, Jesus' disciples are approaching him as they're on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him, tell us when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, there's a particular sense in which this is an interesting question, because what seems to be happening is that at this time in the minds of the disciples, and, and we recognize how their understanding of things is, is developing and, and, and not full and kind of shadowy through, through parts of their, uh, their, of their growth in discipleship before Jesus' crucifixion. So, so, so part of what seems to be happening in the minds of the disciples is that the temple has remained such a critical fixture in their religious life that, that as they're thinking about uh, things along the lines of what Jesus has been saying, if the temple is gone... It must also be the end of the age. In other words, the time has come when Jesus is going to bring about the consummation of all things. So for the disciples, at least at some level in their mind, these two realities seem to go together, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And, and Jesus will speak to events surrounding the destruction of the temple more specifically in verses 15 to 28 of this chapter, which we're not looking at today. But before he does that, he starts to address this end of the age aspect of their question. Um, it's just interesting to note that the expression there in verse 3, the end of the age, that's used uh, six times in the New Testament in total, once in Hebrews. Uh, all the rest of the occurrences are in Matthew's gospel, and all of the, all of the references are, are, that of, are, are referring directly to the consummation of all things when Jesus returns. So that's, that's the context that Jesus is referencing here. And so following this question in verse 3, now in verses 4 to 14, Jesus speaks to truths uh, his present disciples and his future disciples, us, need, uh, especially if we're going to be concerned to be thinking about the end of the age and consider Jesus coming properly and in a way that spurns on our faith. Uh, and as we look at this, the nature of Jesus' response is not necessarily what we would expect, and it's certainly not the response his disciples uh, would have at least initially been looking for. Uh, and so we can just think about this for a moment. Um, sometimes as a parent, uh, you have the occasion to address uh, the difference between what might sound like a really good idea to your child and what might be potentially a better idea in real life. Um, I, I have noticed in my own life that wives have occasion to address this with their husbands as well, but we're not going to use that for an illustration today. We'll just think in terms of parents and children. So, for example, the question may come to you from your child, and, and instead of answering it in the way they would like you to answer it, you choose to answer it differently, and sometimes, believe it or not, that's not necessarily a very happy outcome for them. 
Uh, but that's okay, because sometimes as parents, we have to say something to our kids when they're disappointed in our answer. We have to say something like, I, I see the appeal in this. It actually sounds like a, like a wonderful thing to do, but if I'm really going to be faithful as your dad right now, we're going to have to go this other direction. I mean, if I'm really going to do my job as your dad, I, I, I understand the, the fun that that would represent or whatever it is, but we're actually going to have to do something different. Um, another response might be what you like, but this is the one we're going to have. Uh, because it's the one you need. This is the response you need, which always really clears things up. And it's immediately just smooth sailing and eternal bliss. Everything is happy. Um, but the principle stands that as parents who care for children we love, the answer we give might not necessarily correspond with what's hoped for when the question is asked. Um, and, and we have good precedent for that as parents because that's exactly what Jesus is doing here for his disciples. Uh, his disciples have asked for a sign that would indicate the end of the age. So, so in other words, uh, Jesus, we would like you to tell us what we can be looking for so that we can know with greater predictive precision when you'll be coming back and all things will be consummated. And instead of answering that question in a way that the disciples had asked for, Jesus gives them an answer that's different. Um, so, so just look down at this passage and notice how this, how this goes. If you just let your eye run, run through the text, even before we get into some details, you notice that instead of Jesus saying, these are the signs that the end has come, Jesus actually gives them a whole bunch of signs, if you like, that the end is not yet. In fact, Jesus says that very directly in verse 6. These things are happening, and because they are, you can actually know that the end is not yet. And then, then in verse 8, these are just the beginnings of labor pains. And then in verse 13, he calls for perseverance. The one who endures will be saved. And then at the end of verse 14, he makes things very clear when he says that the end will come after all these things that he's been speaking about have taken place, have been going on. So, so what's happened is the disciples have said, give us a sign of the end of the age. And Jesus has responded by saying, actually, I'm going to do something different. I'm not necessarily giving you what you want, but I am giving you what you need. Right? I, I'm not going to give you a sign so you can predict the precise timing of my return. Instead, I'm going to give you the truth you need in order to wait faithfully for my return. So while his disciples want a tangible statement about precise timing, Jesus provides expectations that are ultimately designed to nourish faithful, expectant waiting. Uh, so, so we know as good parents give their child the answer they need, Jesus is our good shepherd. We, we have this example here from him. Here, here we discover that while a statement about exact timing might be what's desired on the part of the disciples, and quite frankly, we all might like that quite a bit if we could have a statement about exact timing with regard to Jesus' return. Um, instead of giving what's desired here, Jesus knows what we really need. And what we really need is not a series of predictions for the future, but what we need is sound truth that will preserve us in our present waiting. And, and so when we approach this subject of Jesus' second advent, we start by approaching it with the instruction of Christ himself here, who speaks to us about what to expect in the meantime. And, th and this is so central to our understanding of things, just as we exist with all the pressures of the world around us and as we long for the return of Christ. We, we, we look at the world around us, we consider the experiences of our own lives, and, and things can be disorienting at best. 
Uh, they can be panic-inducing at worst. We, we open our news feed and scroll through articles that speak about social agendas which disturb us, and we, we read of terrorist activity that's, that's horrific going on in the world around us, and we, and we read of, of everything from shootings to economic disasters to corruption. The world is, is beyond disordered. The world is beyond mere brokenness. The world is in darkness. We know this. And here we are, and it's Christmas time, and we're supposed to be people of hope. But the events around us can start to affect us in ways that whittle away at that hope. Hope erodes and, and with it uh, the peace of God and our trust in Christ can start to seem very frail. But what Jesus provides for us here renews us. It's not easy light-hearted truth that Jesus gives us here. But it's life-giving gospel medicine. Uh, what's here really comes and brings us strength. It reminds us of Jesus' lordship. It reminds us of his purposes. And it reminds us that the one who spoke to the seas and said, be still, is the one who still speaks to us and says, fear not. So, so we come to a passage like this, and, and rather than have a political turmoil, natural disasters, religious persecution, leave us full of anxiety, thinking the world is out of control and all hope is lost, instead, we have the words of the Savior, which offer to us persevering truth. And it's truth we need this morning. It's Christmas kind of truth. Uh, so what we're going to do is we'll, we'll work through this text together. We've, we've already explained a bit the context of the disciples' question there in verse 3. So now we're just going to move through the rest of verses 4 to 14. And we'll think of them all under the heading, uh, Expectations for Advent Waiting. Okay, Expectations for Advent Waiting. Um, so we'll start in verses four, to five, 4 and 5, where Jesus tells us, that we can expect effective deception. That we can expect effective de uh, deception. Look at, I'll just read those again. Verse 4 and 5. Jesus replied to them, Watch out, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. Uh, for some of us, we have the blessing of having certain people in our lives who we can always count on to tell us exactly the way things are. Um, sometimes we don't particularly like to hear it, but we know in our hearts we always need that person in our life and we always benefit from their direct honesty. And in a sense, especially as we come to this passage, Jesus is that kind of teacher. Uh, rather than just giving us a, a cheery assessment of what we'll face as we wait for his return, he provides necessary, honest truth, even though it's a bit sobering. And it starts with this, watch out for deceivers, he says. So Jesus is making it clear that while we wait for his return, some will come in Jesus' name with Messiah-like claims. Right? Jesus is addressing the fact that, that, for example, leaders will appear on the scene of history. They did in the first century. They do in our day. Leaders appear on the scene of history who attempt to take positions that Christ alone should occupy. Now, now in historical reflection, it's, it's rarely directly obvious that this is happening. In fact, in fact, some of these kinds of folks even, even come claiming a kind of allegiance to Jesus himself. They can even come in his name, as Jesus says here. Um, but what's in view here is, is what the scriptures refer to often in other places as, as these, these kinds of antichrist figures. These, these individuals who appear on the scene of history and promise ultimate categories of relief and deliverance and flourishing, though ultimately they are deceivers because they are not the Christ. Right? Now, now, in most cases, they don't come right out and say, I'm Jesus. But they do say things like, the future is certain with me. Right? Your personal hope can be found in what I alone will offer. I will be the security that people need. 
whether it's political figures or, or social campaign luminaries or God help us church uh, and religious leaders, right? These people come and, and say things like hope is found with me. Uh, the, these, these people come that way and they come very effectively. In the end of verse 5, Jesus says they will deceive many. Now, for those who really belong to Jesus, we know that they, the, those, those people are surely preserved. In fact, later on in this discourse, Jesus will speak about that, how his own are preserved. But, but these deceivers, they're effective. And we know they're effective because they garner people's ultimate hope. And we do see it going on around us. Politically, we see it no matter red or blue. If, if the one I voted for doesn't get voted in, it seems like the end of the world is certain. So, so we have this inclination toward false messiahs in our heart. Or on, on catastrophic scales, as we think back down through history, we have men like Hitler who get whole nations to rally behind him because of some kind of demonic hope that he's offering. Right? On smaller scales, you have the, the public personalities that propound certain truths as being the source of ultimate relief and, and vitality. They assure us of a kind of victorious life beyond reaches of tragedy. But all of this is deception. And sometimes we th see these things going on, um, the uh, the, the leaders that can attract so much attention, so, so much allegiance, so much hope is placed upon them. We see these things and we think, surely this is the beginning of the end. Right? Look at how things are spiraling. But then we remember the words of Christ and, and, we, and we recall the fact that this isn't the end. It's actually indicative that this is the period of waiting. The deceivers are going to come, see them for who they are. You know, the Apostle John, he speaks clearly to the early church in his first letter and says, So you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, as we think about history and, and the grand scheme of things, we understand from Scripture that there, there will be a climactic expression of deception away from Christ as history unfolds, a climactic expression that no doubt will be recognizable to the, to the faithful. The Scriptures teach us to expect it. But in the meantime, there's going to be many others, deceivers who promise to be the real Savior of people. And so, and so when we see this, we're not surprised because Jesus himself has told us to expect this kind of thing while we wait for him. So we expect effective deception to be out there. We're mindful of the fact that, that any ultimate hope offered that is not attached to the true revelation of Jesus Christ is idolatrous hope. It's counterfeit. And that counterfeit hope was prevalent in the, in the days of the early church. It's prevalent in our day too. It's part of the time between Advents while we wait for Jesus' return. We can expect effective deception to be around. And then secondly, um, we can also expect, and things just get cheerier here, we can expect grievous and worldwide, uh, grievous worldwide conditions. Uh, so this is verses 6 to 8. If you look at those, we have grievous worldwide conditions there. You're, you're going to hear Jesus says about wars, rumors of wars, verse 6. Nations are going to be rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, verse 7. So Jesus is saying to us that, that while we wait for his return, there's going to be um, conflict-driven, international, bloody rivalry. Right? There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, nations against nations. And it's not just that these, these tragic situations exist on a national political level, but they exist in the natural world as well. In the end of verse 7, we read that there's going to be famines and earthquakes in various places. And so we look around and we Remember our history, and we see where things are at presently, and we, and we nod our heads to all this, don't we? Wars, rumors of wars, yes, we see that. Right? Natural disasters, yes, we see those things going on, and it has been going on. And what does Jesus tell us here in verse 6? This is so central. When you see these kinds of things, the end is not yet. 
So we recently had a pandemic. And we are currently aware of major war-torn conflicts actively going on in our world right now. And our news feeds are constantly warning of potential conflicts that haven't even begun yet. Rumors of more catastrophes abound. And what starts to happen? Well, what happens is that in some cases you have the folks who say the end must be near. And the conflict between Israel and Hamas, the war between Russia and the Ukraine, these things are no doubt horrific and devastating. And some will come along and say, surely that means that it's the end of the age. The world's almost done. I mean, look around. To which Jesus replies, actually, uh, these are the things that mark out the fact that the end is not yet. The world's going on as the world goes on. Conflict, disaster, and all extraordinarily painful, but not unexpected, and not indicators of the end, but instead they're indicators that it's still the period of waiting. The end is not yet. There's no need to, to start a YouTube channel talking about how this present Event fulfills the final days prophecies of the world. No, Jesus, the king of all history, says these these are the in the meantime things. These events are by definition what mark out the truth that we're not there yet. And so what does Jesus call for in the midst of these painful worldwide conditions? Well, the scriptures call us to much in the midst of these things, don't they? But right here, Jesus has one specific point to drive home in verse six. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shocked and frightened by these things. Because, Jesus says, these things must take place. In other words, the world moves forward, no doubt under God's judgment because of sin, but God's purposes and timing rule all of this. These are things that must take place. Our part is not to be alarmed by them. Now, now let's just think this out for a moment. Because, because so often when we start getting into a study of end times and things of that nature, we find that we are constantly confronted with alarming kinds of teaching. Right? Sensational kinds of teaching. You listen to the podcast, you watch the YouTube, you read the book, you hear the preacher, and when you're done, how do you feel? Well, often our curiosity has been excited. But when we're done with those things, often we have a profound sense of anxiety that's built up in our hearts, don't we? That being the case, just take note of what Jesus says here in verse 6. In fact, this applies for, uh, for Christian believers to all the Bible has to say on such matters. When the Scriptures reveal truth about the end of time and the in-between time of waiting, the Scriptures never do so for the purpose of increasing our anxiety, but instead what's revealed is for the purpose of our increased trust and perseverance and peace while we wait. Jesus' own words here are in direct conflict with so much that's taught about the last days in his return. Do not be alarmed. Things go on, don't they? Things go on and what happens? Isn't this all so scary? Don't forget to hit like and subscribe on my YouTube channel, right? But, but this, is, this is all so scary. Isn't this scary? Let me tell you how this fits in and that fits in and chart and graph and code and the boogeyman's coming and all of these things. And what is Jesus saying? Well, the master of the universe remains on his throne. These things are not a matter of chance, but the world goes on under the meticulous and purposeful timing of God. So don't be alarmed. I'll just say this to you pastorally. You know, part of my job is warning. That's part of a pastor's job. Lead, feed, watch, and warn. That's a pastor's main job. Right? Part of my job is warning. I need to do my job. So let me say this. If you find yourself listening to or reading about the present times and the end times and the teaching that claims to come from Christian perspectives, but leaves you worried, it leaves you worried and anxious when you're done listening to it, stop engaging with it because it's not from Christ. Right? The truth of Christ comes to us 
for the sake of building up our persevering trust and peace. When Christ's truth is done with us, we're stronger and pressing on with greater vigor. We're not shriveled up in the corner of a dark room rocking. Christ's truth comes with securing and stabilizing power for those who are His. And so when the world seems to be crashing down around you, do not fear, Jesus says, this is what things are like as we wait. And to hear something alternative to that is to contradict Christ's own word on the matter, and so we stop with that stuff. In fact, verse 8, Jesus says, these are just the beginnings of labor pains. Now, I don't know much about that, but I do know that the beginning of labor pains is not the event of childbirth itself. I picked that up along the way. They exist before childbirth. They lead up to it. They're the 2 a.m. trip to the hospital because you think it might be time, but the doctor smiles kindly and says, it's not time, you have to go back home. Right? The beginning of labor pains. Wars, rumors of wars, that's what this stuff is. It's, it's part of the tension of the waiting. Okay? So Leon Morris, the scholar, he makes this comment. He says, each generation has its share of political and natural disasters. And each generation is tempted to think that its own experiences are somehow worse and of more ultimate significance than the sufferings of other generations. But it is not yet the end. At the most, such events can be seen as the beginning of labor pains. But the period from the first labor pain to childbirth may be short or long. So, see to it that you're not alarmed, Jesus says. In effect, he's really calling us to be Psalm 27 people. You know, King David, who certainly saw his share of, of significant conflicts. Psalm 27, King David writes this. He says, though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. I mean, wow. What if an army was after you? What would you be saying? Right? Be catatonic, probably, I would be. Right? Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I've asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire. What? Please don't let that army chase me anymore. No, it's not what he says. I've asked one thing from the Lord. This is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. For He will conceal me in His shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of His tent. He will set me high on a rock. You see, when these things go on around us, we certainly express sorrow. We, exp we express lament. Sometimes the pain is very close to us. Nat national and natural disasters leave us bereaved. But they don't leave us hopeless. And they don't leave us panicked. If nothing else, at the very least, when we read about these kinds of things in nature, when we, when we experience these kinds of things on a national level, what we must bring to mind is the fact that they actually prove Christ's word is true to us. Jesus told us this is what it would be like as we waited for his return. And these events prove I can trust his word. And if I can trust his word about the tumult in this world, I can trust his word that he will be my keeper and I will one day dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the first advent of Christ compels us to consider the second advent of Christ. And Jesus says that while we wait for that, we can, one, expect effective deception. And two, we can expect grievous worldwide conditions. And then thirdly, in 9 to 12, uh, Jesus also says we can expect gospel-centered affliction. Gospel-centered affliction. If you look at verse 9, uh, we have the verse starting with the word then, in our English translations. And it, it should be noted that, uh, that, that all of that discourse has a number of, of, of exciting things written about it from a few various perspectives. And if you want to talk about all of those, that will be a, a coffee or at least, at least a coffee, maybe a sandwich kind of conversation. Uh, I suppose we could do that if you really want to. 
Um, but getting into this, we recognize there are some little pieces along the way that can cause interpretations to vary. Uh, one of those is this then that's here. Uh, so sometimes that can cause an interpretation of events here in this chapter to be viewed as sequential, like after natural disasters are on the scene of history, then persecution is sequentially next. That's what's coming. So, you know, the earthquakes are there, and that's why you get some of this stuff. The earthquakes going on. Now we're really going to see a ramping up in Christian persecution because we just had this big natural disaster. Now this, but of course, that doesn't happen that way. These things are all mushed together. Secondly, then in the Greek text, doesn't emphasize sequence. It just indicates at that time. Right? So we might smooth it out to say something like, at the same time, that's what's going on here. So we can't get too hung up on that kind of stuff. But again, that's more of a get-copy-together conversation, but you need to know, you need to know that. Um, so, so in other words, Jesus is just speaking all about this period of waiting here. So in verse 9, Jesus speaks about persecution for his disciples. Jesus speaks of us being hated around the world because of his name. Uh, so from outside the community of Christ, there's deep trouble that can come while we wait. We don't need anybody to tell us that necessarily. We, we see that going on. We've experienced that probably to some degree. Even in, in, the, in the workplace, in school, we recognize uh, that there is a strange, off-putting tone toward those who are confessing Christ. It's just kind of there. Right? And of course, that can take place on very, very significant levels. It has down through history to the point that Jesus speaks about here of his disciples being killed. So you've got this going on uh, from outside the church. And then in connection with that, in verse 10, we read that within the community of faith, there's going to be those who fall away, betray other believers, and even hate one another. So there can be trouble within as well. Now, now we need to say something about this because this can start making us think, well, you know, I, I, was, I was pretty sure that when Jesus saves me, that salvation he extends to me is, is fixed. No one can take my disciples from my hand. He says things like that. And now all of a sudden you have people here apostatizing and, and, and betraying others and hating Christians within the church. What's going on with this? But we have to see how this kind of activity is connected with what we read about, uh, say, for example, in the parable of the sower and the seed. Right? You remember the, the seed, the gospel message, it falls on certain ground and it springs up with joy really quickly. Right? Very excited about the message of the gospel. But then what happens? Well, the hot sun shines. And all of a sudden, that excitement goes away when things become difficult, when things become hard. And what's proved is that this isn't actually somebody who's really trusting in Jesus. They got excited for a little while, but there's not a genuine rooted faith there. And we have that displayed here in this kind of situation where there are going to be some, uh, as, as, as the persecution comes, as these things go on, as things exist within the church, uh, these people are going to betray Jesus' true disciples, abandon the faith when things get heated. Uh, and so again, Jesus is, is preparing us for these kinds of things here. And then in verse 11, we have another reference to deception. So false prophets, they're going to rise up, deceiving many. So there are going to be those who, who might be uh, tending toward a connection with, with Christ and his people. The false teachers ultimately lead them away from genuine faith. This is, this is true historically. Uh, this is true presently. You know, it's, it's countless, the number of people, the prosperity gospel is gathered all those sensitive hearts and entice them away from, from the true Christ. That's something that's gone on to a, to, a, to a destructive degree in our own age. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. Right? These things exist very potently still around us. Those who, who claim to have the word of God but are ultimately deceivers and they lie. Right? False prophets. So, so in this time while we wait for Jesus, it will be marked out by these kinds of pressures. In fact, Jesus says in verse 12, as lawlessness multiplies, Love will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. And we hear the word lawless, and you know, for us it's very civil sounding in terms of a civil law. 
Uh, for Jesus, he's speaking in, in terms of obedience to God's law, and obedience to God's instruction. Uh, so, so in thinking about this, you know, true allegiance to God and his will and purposes tends toward a, a general decrease, culturally speaking. We just see that cycle through history, right? It was true in ancient times. It's true in our own times. There's just a tendency in our fallen human heart as manifested in culture at large that, that while there are genuine revivals, the gospel goes forward with power, then there's this decline that takes place. There's this going away from the truth of God. It's happened all through history. And as a result, many grow cold in their love for God when that takes place. Again, we remember the parable of the sower and the seed, the seed, the, the message of the gospel that falls on all kinds of ground and all kinds of ground seems to have a response to it at first, even a positive response, but it's only the seed that falls in the good soil that grows fruitfully and we see this around us. Right? The, the pull of social norms that are contrary to God's truth can be so attractive. And so then there are those who, who once maybe displayed an interest in the things of Christ, an interest in the word of God. All of a sudden they're pulled by those new social norms away from that and their love for God, their love for that truth grows cold. The language here is actually of embers that burn out in a fire. So they're enticed away from faithful believing. However, not all people are affected that way. Jesus says here, the one who endures to the end will be saved. All through the scriptures, the genuine mark of a Christian believer is final perseverance. That's not to say we never encounter difficulty. But it is to say that ultimately our hope is resting in Christ. And whatever might steal that trust away will not have the upper hand in our lives. Because the Lord will preserve us. And as he does, we'll press on. And, and, that's, and that's what this truth Jesus is giving us, is, is helping us to do. It's preventative medicine, isn't it? Jesus is, Jesus is saying, you know what it's going to be like while you wait so that you can be watching for these things, so you can be careful, so you can be prayerful and vigilant and remain engaged in the community of, of the saints in a meaningful way. It is no small thing to persevere in the faith, but by God's help we do. And in a world that we know so often calls us away from that. It's so enticing for our love to grow cold in many different ways. We have, we have the, the phraseology all around us. Things like speak your own truth. Which is so contrary to Christ's call to die to self. Right? But Jesus is giving us these things so that we can recognize what it means to continue to persevere and follow him. And these things come as, and as they do we see them for what they are. So in the meantime we're not surprised by them. We're saddened. We're affected. But we're not surprised. So we've got this effective deception, grievous worldwide conditions, gospel-centered affliction. They're all very present. And then one more thing Jesus says here. Uh, he has one more thing to say, and is that during this time of waiting, we can also expect something quite, quite joyful and victorious in that we can expect good news proclamation to be going on in a worldwide kind of way. It's actually the, a, a herald word there. As if, as if the, the one running through town after a prince has been born to tell the subjects of the good news. That's the herald word that's used here. The gospel is going to go all throughout the world as, as this announcement of good news that there is rescue, that there is salvation. It goes, as Jesus says here, the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So between now and the end, there are expectations of hardship won't be alarmed and afraid. Between now and the end, there are expectations of very difficult conditions, and we're not going to stop trusting, but we're going to be persevering. And between now and the end, the gospel will continue to go forth with far reach. We're not going to be hiding away, but we're to be out with the message. So Jesus' disciples ask him, when will it be the end of the age? 
And Jesus responds to their question with a better answer to a different question. He responds by saying, let me give you some expectations to help you in your persevering while you're waiting. There will be effective deception, so be careful. There will be grievous worldwide conditions. Don't be alarmed. Don't panic. There will be gospel-centered affliction. Press on to the end. And there will be worldwide spread of the truth of God's kingdom, so get busy. This Christmas, we're reminded that, that the Jesus who came is the one who's coming again. And rather than give us charts and graphs so as to predict the timing of his return, he gives us truth to aid in the biggest thing that matters, that is our perseverance in the faith. We keep trusting. So this Christmas, we just check ourselves by these things. Am I persevering? Have there been things near to me in these days that might have caused me to stumble in some way, some distance from the truth of Jesus, of his love, of his justice, of his mercy? We watch for these things. And as we do, we're renewed in the hope that the psalmist voices, right? when will you come to me, the psalmist says. Or renewed in the hope that John calls us to at the end of Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus, this is our desire. But as we're waiting in the meantime, we'll wait faithfully and we will not wait uninformed. But instead, we'll be, we'll be waiting renewed in the truth that Christ gives us in order that we can persevere and know that he's going to be the one who maintains us as we do. And so we're, in, we're encouraged by this truth because Christ gives it to us for that very purpose so that we can keep going, knowing that he is not only the king of the kingdom, but he's the master of the universe. And according to the perfect timing of God, all things continue to move. We're thankful for that truth. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that we would be encouraged by this this morning. Uh, we recognize that there are heavy elements to this, and, and we need that truth to be planted down deep in our hearts. We want to be persevering people. We know we need your grace for that, and we ask that you would grant it to us in a significant way. We thank you for your word, and we ask that it would have a persevering effect on our heart, that our love for Christ would be continual and always renewing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.